This episode is sponsored by the band Secret MG Society. From Two Feet and a Dream to Sorrows Drowned, their album The Stars Fall Shooting into Twangsville will take you on a gritty and beautiful tour down the dusty roads of life and into the darkest corners of your heart. If you dig songs that will make you want to dance while you cry, if you long for Americana made by and for those who live on the edges of American culture, visit Secret MG Society's Bandcamp page at emchy.bandcamp.com and order Stars Fall Shooting today. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. If you can choose to be invisible, it's a superpower. There's nothing more magical than the idea of knowing you could waltz through a room unseen or eavesdrop on someone without them knowing. Whoa! My body's gone! I know what that is! That's an invisibility cloak! I'm invisible. But when invisibility is not a choice, when it's forced on you, it's a curse. You ever say something in a crowded room and nobody listens? You ever turn on the TV and feel like no one else like you actually exists? You see the social network? The Indian guy is a white guy. They use brown face makeup. No, no, I read that he's 116th Indian. For all 116th something, I'm probably 116th black. You think they're gonna let me play Blade? Invisibility is the theme of Bitch Magazine's summer print issue. What are we not seeing in our films? Who are we not hearing from in our media? Who remains invisible, despite having more technology than ever, to broadcast ourselves to the world? On this episode, we talk with two authors featured in the Invisibility print issue about the often invisible violence police commit against Black women and the way emotional labor remains invisible in our money-driven economy. But first, a story about an invisible sickness and what happens when it takes over your body. My fever hit like 103 and we went to the ER and even they sent me home, which was terrifying for my partner. And then uh, I black out from that point forward. Um, Hi, my name is Julia Weldon. I am um, an indie folk pop artist and singer-songwriter and actor and queer activist. That's a lot of job titles. Yeah, right? I don't know know if I qualify for all of them, but... (laughs) Julia is usually on the road, touring colleges and leading workshops and playing shows all over the country. Two years ago, Julia was about to start work on a new album. But first, Julia, who is genderqueer, had something very important to take care of gender-affirming top surgery. Julia's top surgery was a mastectomy, a surgical process where a person's breasts are removed. In this case, to give Julia a body that felt more right. It's a pretty major surgery. So I was having F to M top surgery, and I was so excited um, to do this because I knew that it was, I knew that having top surgery was like one of the, one of these things that would hopefully change my life. And it really did. And for the better, even despite what ended up happening. The surgery itself went fine. But in the week afterwards, Julia kept feeling sick. They had flu-like symptoms and a massive, unrelenting headache. They returned to the ER, and it became clear that something was very, very wrong. Something invisible was ravaging Julia's body. 
Uh, My body just basically shut down. It turned out that Julia had contracted an infection, either before the surgery or during it. The infection moved to my brain and my brain swelled. And um, it's like that week of my life is the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. It's it's so scary and meta, right? Like I couldn't communicate. I couldn't communicate what was happening to me because it didn't make sense. Like I couldn't communicate how bad I felt because my brain was in a state of shock, I think. And it was starting to really swell and be like my brain was slowly shutting down. It's scarier to me to think about that, that thing taking over my body slowly and literally like making my brain shut down because I had no control to the point where like I couldn't communicate or understand what was happening to me. Then suddenly, Julia had a seizure and fell into a coma. They were out for four days. And then um, I luckily just, I woke up. And when I woke up, I had limited sensory everything, but I was, uh, I was really happy because I had no negative emotions. So that was lucky. And then um, it just was like a long, long process of recovering. Like I I couldn't do anything on my own for about three months. When Julie was finally able to pick up a guitar again and start making songs, they used music to try and explore those lost days before, during, and after the coma. Those songs became their new album, Comatose Hope, which was just released this July. I saw my heart splitting into So I think that the songs are representative of like that moment coming up and out of that experience and coming to life again. And like some people say this and I I came out of this experience being like, okay, I I need like I have this new lease on life and I I want to turn it into something beautiful. Well, I'm so glad you're alive. (laughs) I'm pretty glad I'm alive, too. I've cheated in life. She was wrong. Julia's new album is the soundtrack for all of today's show. You'll hear her songs woven throughout the rest of our discussions of invisibility. As you hear the songs, think about what it's like to fall out of the world and then come back to it again. Oh, I've looked but failed to find Made a mess There are all kinds of work in this world. Some kinds of work get you money, some don't. And a lot of the work we do isn't seen as work at all. It's invisible labor. That's the idea behind the article, A Modest Proposal for a Fair Trade Emotional Labor Economy in the Invisibility Issue of Bitch. Hey, uh, my name is Leah Lakshmi Pjepsnesamrasinga, and I am a queer, disabled, mixed-race Sri Lankan writer and cultural worker. Um, And you wrote this amazing article for the summer issue of Bitch, The Invisible Issue. Can you just read the first paragraph of it aloud? Yeah, totally. The thing about being a working class or poor and or disabled and or parenting and or black, indigenous or brown femme is that people are going to ask you to do stuff for them. Oh, are they ever. 
they are going to ask you to listen, do a favor, do an errand, drop everything to go buy them some cat food or crisis counsel, manage logistics, answer feelings emails, show up, empathize, build and maintain relationships, organize the childcare, the access support, the food, be screamed at, de-escalate, conflict resolute. They're going to say, can I just pick your brain about something? And then they are going to send you a five paragraph email full of pretty goddamn complicated questions. It'd be real nice if you could get back to them ASAP. They're going to ask if you can email them your PowerPoint and all of your resources. Some of them will, people, will be people who are close to you. Some of them will be total strangers. Do you have a minute? For free. Forever. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Leah. Uh, yeah. So this, this article is all about the, the care economy and emotional labor. Uh-huh. So let's just start out with some basics, which is what is emotional labor? And how do you define what's called the care economy? Like what was the impetus yeah. to start putting language and definition huh. to the things that we now call emotional labor? Right. Well, um, I think the impetus was one half total frustration and um, one half like black and brown working class disabled feminism, you know, centered by femmes. You know, it's all of the things that are in the paragraph I just read. It's all of this labor that's, you know, mostly completely unpaid um, of caring, noticing, showing up. And that could be things as concrete in a way as doing disability support labor for a friend or somebody in your community um, that's physical. Um, It can be doing emotional support, um, you know, and it can be, and it's also, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this recently. And I guess there's this meta document on MetaFilter about emotional labor that's started as like a comment on MetaFilter and is now like a 75 page thread. And it's people saying things like, yeah, and it's a lot of the people who commented on that, I think were heterosexual, cisgendered women. Um, But they were saying things like, yeah, it's like how I always remember when it's my partner's mother's birthday and I get the card and I get him to sign the card and I mail it. It's like all of that stuff that's, you know, that's so little, right? But actually it's really not. It's what holds up families, communities, um, movements, movements. And I think some of the impetus for it, um, this might be segueing into some of the other questions you asked, was, um, you know, I mostly just hang out with other queer fans, you know, who are mostly disabled and mostly of color and mostly working class, because I just deal with life by blocking out a lot of other stuff that bugs me. Um, And, you know, starting around five years ago, I was in having conversations with a lot of my femme friends who are political organizers and community organizers about the ways in which we did forms of organizing that weren't seen as quote unquote real organizing. Um, I remember really clearly talking to a friend of mine who's done a lot of sex work organizing where she was like, yeah, you know, a huge part of my organizing is talking with other people on the phone, you know, and it's not necessarily just about what are we doing with the rally? It's like, Oh, your kid got sick, you know? Oh, you're really stressed out. Oh, you're having a mental health moment. Um, Oh, you're figuring out this really intense thing about your trauma. It's listening, it's noticing, it's showing up. I'm really, I'm lucky. Um, I'm 42 years old. I've been disabled for over 20 years now. And I've been autistic since birth or, you know, whatever. Um, I've been neurodivergent for a really long time. Um, And in the past decade of my life, I've been really lucky to be able to be a part of a disability community that's like mostly, that's, you know, mostly people of color, mostly queer, Um, that's what we call the disability justice movement, um, among other things. And I've been in disabled cutie pot communities online and in person where 
we give each other so much care. And so many of us, you know, across many different disabilities, share an experience of able-bodied people just continually forgetting that we exist, forgetting about our access needs, forgetting about disability. And there's kind of a joke that I have um, that I think is really true is that one of one of the hallmarks of crypt community can be that we refuse to forget about each other and that we show up for all those, you know, to able-bodied world, annoying little disability moments. Um, and there's so many times in disability community where, you know, you see, I see people do things like, oh, you're out of your effects or I've got two pills. I'm going to mail it to you. I don't even know you, but we're on this Facebook group. Um, in, in the article, you write that far too often the emotional labor that's done isn't seen as, as labor. It's invisible. Um, the quote that really stuck out to me from your article was, it's seen as air, the little things you do on the side, not real organizing work, not real work, just talking about feelings and buying groceries. So in in your life, like, when did you start to recognize that shift? Like, when did you start to shift from recognizing that from thinking that this wasn't important to recognizing that emotional labor takes work and energy and should be appreciated? Like, was there a time to remember that changing for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple things I could talk about. But one time that really jumps out at me was, um, so I lived in Oakland, California for seven years. And then in 2014, I moved back to Toronto. And I did it for a bunch of reasons. But a lot of it was that I was priced out. Um, when I moved to Oakland, it, it was really possible to have like a nice housing situation for $400. And I actually knew a lot of foreign working class queers and especially queers of color who had relocated to the Bay um, because you could be with other cutie park and you didn't have to be middle class or wealthy. And then Google hit again and the housing crisis hit and it's just gotten worse. And I just, I really needed to live someplace that was more accessible and more affordable. So I moved back to Toronto, which is one of my big homes. And, um, and you know, and basically what happened was like in my years living in Oakland, I had done so much free labor, you know, and I had wanted to do it and it felt like the right thing to do. And there was so much that was really powerful about it. I lived in two collective houses in a row where it was kind of an unpaid part-time job to live there. We, one in particular, we were a community center. We always had people staying there. We had events and meetings and, you know, potlucks and like, you know, 30 people on the couch and like, and, you know, a really terrible landlord and, a, you know, horrible conditions in the house where there's a black mold infestation and the roof was caving in and we got robbed five times. And it was like really and being home a lot. I was like, OK, like I'll I'll just throw in my time to this, you know, and long story short, I moved back to Toronto and I just remember being in you know, my friend's house where it was just me and her and one other person. And it was so quiet and all those responsibilities fell away. And I just was like, oh, my God, that's why I've been so tired <laughs> So there's this there's this long history of activism around trying to get this kind of invisible emotional labor recognized and appreciated in some way. And in your article in Invisibility, you shout out the Black Women for Wages for Housework campaign, which started in 1980. And the Wages for Housework movement was, just like it sounds, about shifting the way people think about labor that goes into taking care of a home and a family and arguing that people who do that kind of work should be compensated in some way. So what was it about the Black Women for Wages for Housework campaign that like most resonated with you around what you can and cannot do when caring for others and how that work should be appreciated? 
I mean, black, you know, the International Wages for Housework campaign, um, which is founded a little earlier, which was started in 1972, and, you know, Black Women for Wages for Housework, they have, like, I mean, they're still around. Like, they have a huge, complicated history um, that I can't even do justice to in this um, in this interview. But I, and, and I don't claim to know everything about, you know, those movements. But I guess when I heard about them, I was just like, wow, that's such an audacious demand. You know, just the title alone being, like, Wages for Housework. Like, it's the insistence that, like, housework is not just, oh, you know, it's not work, it's not time, it's not energy, you just, you know, you just you just do the laundry, you just do the dishes. It's like, no, it's work. It's work, and it's feminized labor, and it should be paid. And I feel like there's a, an insistence embedded in that campaign that, like, it's skilled work, too, you know, because I think part of the sexism that goes into labor dynamics is this idea that care work or housework are not skilled labor, that anyone can do them. You know, it doesn't take any training. It's just whatever. And I think there's something in those campaigns that say it's it's work. It's skilled work. Industrial capitalism is built on the backs of free feminized labor. You know, there's no way that every all that all the ways that capitalism makes money could happen without emotional labor, without care, without people doing um, child care, home care and emotional care for free. Um, one of the essential questions um, that I started this piece with was, you know, I. I've been in tons and tons of conversations with other femmes about and other disabled folks and people who are both about care labor and the ways we feel exploited and the ways we feel like we do all this work and we don't get recognized and it gets brushed off. And so my kind of like problem solving mind was like, okay, what would be a fair trade economy? Like what would be some rules of engagement that made this feel better? You know, cause I don't want to abolish care labor, but I want us not to feel screwed over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in, in your article, you lay out some ground rules for establishing a fair trade economy for emotional labor, which I think is so interesting because, like, as you just mentioned, all of this, I feel like, comes back to capitalism. It comes back to what is appreciated in our society depends on our economic system. And the root of emotional labor being not seen as actual work or appreciated that way comes from who's running our economy and what what are they valuing. So anyway, so, so you lay out some, grand, some ground rules for a fair trade economy for emotional labor. I'm not going to go through the whole list of ideas you suggest because there's a bunch and a lot of them are hilarious. But the very first one is that, quote, the fair trade emotional economics are consensual. Can 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 you lay out what that means? Yeah, I mean, I think well, one thing that I know personally for me has been something where I was like, oh, this doesn't feel good is when. And, it, and it's something I've seen in a lot of femme communities where people go, yeah, people just show up and they don't ask me if I have time. They don't say, hey, is this a good moment? They just go, here's this really big crisis situation. Fix it. You know, and there's just this assumption that you're available and that you can do it. Um, it comes from that place. Um, and for me, I was like, yeah, something I've seen a lot of femmes talking about is like, you know, I'm not saying don't ask me for help. I'm not saying don't ask me for resources, but value my time. Like, and don't assume that I'm just this universal mommy whose tits are kind of just on tap 24 seven, you know, like, you know, maybe I'm doing something else right now. Maybe I'm actually like, I've had people be like, I texted you two hours ago. Where are you? And I was like, maybe I was watching TV. You know, I get to do that. Um, you know, I've, I had a friend recently where I was like really having a rough time emotionally and I just was like, hey, I'm uh, and she was like, totally, I can listen to you. She's like, I just want to be totally straight up. What I have is I've got 10 minutes to listen to you. And then, you know, I think she was like my surge chapters, like accountability council is coming over for a meeting. So then I got to go because I got to put out like snacks. And I was like, this is such I was miserable, but I was totally cracking up because I'm like, this is such a femme emotional labor moment. 
And, but the point is that she was able to be like, this is, I got 10 minutes. Is that going to work for you? You know, cause it goes both ways. I could be like, actually what I need right now is I need to find somebody, whether it's a counselor, a crisis line, a friend, a tree, whatever, who can listen to me freak out for, t- for an hour. It's not going to feel good if I'm cut off after 10 minutes or I could be like, Hey girl, yeah, 10 minutes, let's go. You know? And I think that so much of the time we, unfortunately people aren't met with that kind of narrative of negotiation. It's just kind of like, Hey, let me dump this huge problem on you. Please fix it. And I think that like absolutely comes from like a place of ableism and capitalism and scarcity where we are in scarcity. There's not enough care in systems and places. So people get really desperate and they're just like, please talk to me about this thing. I'm coming from a place where I've survived really intense partner abuse and stalking multiple times. And both times I was really, really isolated. I, I had to deal with it myself. It was very scary. Um, and I came from the place like a lot of survivors of like, hey, I never want, I know what it's like to desperately reach out to a stranger for support. I'm never going to say no. You know, I'm always going to show up. And in more recent times, especially um, my mom started to die last year and I hit a lot of limits to my emotional capacity. And um, I just started to be like, okay, that's real. And I can also be like, hey, I really want to be there for you. And I'm actually supporting like 10 people in their processes right now. And I have my mom's stuff. I actually can't. Like, are there other people you can talk to? I can help you. Maybe like, here's some resources. Here's some people you can maybe reach out to. That kind of thing. So I guess like that's an important, I don't know if, I hope it's coming across, but I guess like part of the consent it's also like really rooted in the fact that so many people are really isolated and don't have the services that we need for really desperate things that have to do with abuse, disability, you know, madness, mental health stuff. And so we reach out and I never want to shame anyone for doing that. And I also think that a lot of people I know who are doing disability work, transformative justice work, lots of kinds of work are like, fuck, I'm the lady you go to. I mean, I, I had a friend the other day who was like, I recently, I was working with a couple of my friends who were suicidal and I was doing it, you know, and I, you know, and I was really glad to, but then I really crashed afterwards. And my friend was like, it's hard to be the, one of the people who's good with suicide, isn't it? Who people go, oh, talk to that person. And I think a lot of people are in that, some version of that position where you, you know, we do care work, we're good at it. And then people go, oh, you know, I can't trust anyone with this, but you. And I think this is kind of, the consent is a big part of it, but I also think building out those skills. So there's not this feeling of, you know, there's just three people in the community who you can trust to talk to about mental health or disability or suicide or transformative justice, but that like a lot of people have those skills and that we have a lot of, I hate this word, but like abundance in terms of like being able to offer that to each other. Just one last question, which is that one of the other rules that you spell out for the ground rules for establishing a fair trade economy for emotional labor is that fair, here's, I'm going to quote, fair trade, (laughs) Fair trade care labor is not a one-sided, femphobic, shit, sexist shit show. So, yeah. I think that's so funny. Why Why is it something people need to hear? Like, what... The patriarchy. The white capitalist, colonialist, ableist, the sexist patriarchy. That's why. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> In a sentence, and real quick, I will just say, because 
I mean, I think that is the heart of that. I think, and I want to be really clear, like I was really worried in putting this piece out in the world, which is a work in progress. I was like, I'm really, I'm not, I want to be really clear that I'm not coming from a biologically or gender essentialist place where I'm like, all femmes are mommy and all masculine people don't ever care. That's not true. That's bullshit. And another thing I said in this piece was like, these are all learnable skills, right? Um, and when we're in communities that support all genders of people learning how to care and receive care, you know, it happens, right? And we, we need to keep building that. Um, but I will say that like we live in a white capitalist, colonialist, sexist, ableist patriarchy. So in generally speaking and systematically, and, and there are systems that prop this up, you know, femme, feminine people are often assumed to be people who just automatically care that that's our role you know, and that we don't have a choice about it. That's just what we are there to do. And in many communities, that is what we were rewarded for and valued for. And when we're not able to care, we're a bitch, you know, and it's kind of just like, wow, you know, like misogyny is still there in queer communities. It looks different. So all this shit can happen, you know, through any gender of people. But I don't want to recreate sexism. You know, I want to have femme and masculine and other genders. I want to have a gender universe, but I don't want to have this bullshit. You can read Leia's Ground Rules for a fair trade emotional labor economy in the summer print issue of Bitch and at bitchmedia.org. I also suggest you pick up her memoir, Dirty River, a queer femme of color dreaming her way home, which was an American Library Association Stonewall Award winner in 2016. Check it out. Andrea Ritchie is very good at seeing what's not there. As a lawyer focused on police misconduct, she's devoted her life to shining a light on the problems that police departments want to sweep under the rug. As a black, lesbian woman, Andrea Ritchie has had issues of police violence, sexism, and racism on her radar long before they became national media talking points. She's the co-author with Kimberly Williams Crenshaw of the report Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, and also the co-author of the book Queer Injustice, the Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. Her newest book is just as much of a doozy. It's called Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and it documents the roots of today's police violence all the way from Ferguson back to the colonial-era genocide of Native Americans. It's a tough read. Every page documents violence including many, many cases and incidents that never got any attention or anything approaching justice. In charting the patterns of racism and violence, the book is a crucial resource that I think will resonate for a long, long time. If I was an American history teacher, I would assign Invisible No More to my class in about one second. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, Andrea. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and for and to Bitch Magazine for featuring the book. So in your book, you talk about a couple disturbing interactions that you had with police officers as a teenager. Um, for example, in one, you recount going up to a police officer on the street to report that a group of men were harassing and catcalling you, only to have that police officer also like start making nasty comments about your body. So I'm wondering, what do you remember thinking about the police when you were a teenager? Like, what did you learn from your community and your own experiences and from pop culture about the police? No, it's interesting. I don't remember um, learning much about the police there. I grew up in a community uh, where I was privileged 
where there were not that many police officers. So um, it was a small town outside of Montreal, and um, I just don't actually remember very many interactions with police. And we didn't talk about them at home. So I, I think that I was privileged in that respect and that I didn't have to learn those lessons very early on. And then I think, you know, I lived in other countries, um, one of which was uh, Haiti as a young person. And there I was very clear and under a dictatorship. So I was very clear that the police there were dangerous um, and uh, certainly not people that you went to or sought out in any way, shape, or form, um, because they were serving the interests of a dictator and were were very repressive. So I hadn't really thought about them uh, much. And and in the and as I point out in the book, you know, the encounters I had with them as a teen made it clear to me that they were not uh, people that could could or would help me, and in fact were as likely to be harmful to me as anyone else uh, when I was in a vulnerable situation. So you wound up becoming a lawyer, and I'm interested about what what motivated that, what motivated you to become a lawyer, because I know a lot of people go into law school with big plans to change the world and then become utterly disillusioned and embittered by the whole system. <laughs> well, I resisted being a lawyer for a long time. People have been telling me um, throughout my you know, college life and early 20s that I would be suited to the position, which I didn't exactly take as a compliment. And um, sort of resisted uh, for a long time because, you know, there's a lot of sort of stereotypes about lawyers. And I also had a sense that that being a lawyer is being part of the system and is about upholding the system um, that is built on systemic and structural inequality and that that's maintained through law and not feeling very confident that you could then use, as, you know, Audre Lorde um, cautions us against, the master's tool to dismantle the master's house. And so... I resisted for a long time and realized as an activist that um, I had, was sort of coming up against consistent kind of structural, you know, um, walls and, uh, you know, one was economic and the other was legal. And seeing as I'm not very good at math um, and didn't really have a strong understanding of economics, um, I felt like getting a better understanding of legal structures would um, serve the activism that I was interested in doing. Um, and I had during that time become a paralegal and had worked on workers' comp cases and just found that I also, that it was, that people, people were telling me it was true, that I had some skills and a collection of experiences that actually made me well-suited to engaging in, in research and advocacy and um, communications in terms of the ways that um, lawyers, that those are the basic skills of lawyering. So... Um, I went to law school, but I uh, chose to go to Howard University School of Law because it felt important to me to go to a law school where there there would be a healthy critique of the law as a tool of maintaining structural oppression as opposed to an illusion that it was a race-neutral you know, instrument of justice. The heart of your book is about recognizing police violence against Black women, and there's a sentence from the introduction that I'm hoping you can read. Could you just read that? Sure. Black women, long the backbone of efforts to resist state violence, are insisting that we will no longer only play the role of a grieved mother, girlfriend, partner, sister, daughter, or invisible organizer, and demanding recognition that we, too, are targets of police violence. And so much, I like that line because so much of your book is about exactly that, like how the violence against Black women from the era of slavery to now is often invisible in our history. It's like just a footnote in a historical discussion. So I'm wondering how you 
feel that invisibility shapes the way that Americans see both the police and see our own history? I think there just is a, a real willful amnesia in the United States um, and in Canada as well. And I really highly commend to your readers um, a book that's coming out this August called Policing Black Lives, which um, uh, sort of chronicles a similar historical trajectory in Canada, but also looks at the unique um, circumstances that shaped that country uh, and, and the parallels as well. It's by Robin Maynard. Um, but it in both places, there is a real willful historic amnesia in terms of the amount of violence and the forms and shapes of violence that uh, can, that were required and deployed in order to establish the United States as a nation state, as a settler nation state, um, and to maintain that. And I think you know people saw the violence at Standing Rock last summer and were horrified by it, and at the same time struggled to see that this was this is just the latest sort of manifestation of a long thread of settler colonial violence and when they saw violence on the front lines against women indigenous women protecting their land from elders to to pregnant women to 14 year old girls um, that too is part of a of a continuous thread through United States history that that we certainly don't learn about in school I didn't learn about in school in Canada and to the extent that we tend to talk about that historical violence. It's very generic. It's referred to as Indian Wars, um, but we don't talk about um, the specificities of it and the gender-specific specificities of it and the continuing impacts of it um, in present-day um, United States. And the same is very much true around slavery and the continuing impacts of slavery um, and what we call under the law the badges and incidents of slavery uh, that continue to this day and um, and how the, the kinds of sexual violence that black women experienced throughout uh, kidnapping from Africa, the Middle Passage, uh, and throughout chattel slavery and beyond in the United States are continue to be perpetrated by the police and other state actors, immigration authorities, and so on uh, to the present day. And they're part, again, of a continuous thread of gendered state violence that um, is not something that is prominently featured when we have discussions, even in you know Black History Month or when we're talking about um, you know the foundation of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes it seem like each incident of police violence, aggression against protesters or assault of somebody comes out of the blue. Like that for I think for a long time, um, at least like white and middle class white Americans have been seeing like, you know, police acts of police brutality as being like, oh, well, this one thing happened. Oh, so there one thing happened. So there one thing happened. And in recent years, activists have done really great work around Black Lives Matter and say her name to draw the pattern between those those incidences and say, hey, actually, this isn't just like a one-off incident. This is a repeating systemic pattern in our history. And that feels like really what, what your book is shooting for, too, is to say, you know, this isn't what's invisible here is the system that creates these incidents that pop up in our media and capture attention for a little bit. But what we don't see is our history and our, the whole systems behind this. Absolutely. It it felt like it was really important to do that, particularly around instances of police violence against black women and women of color and indigenous women. um, Because I do feel like Sandra Bland's case and Sandra Bland is very much in my mind today. It's the second anniversary of her death uh, in Waller County jail. 
it felt important to place that story in context and to to really emphasize that Sandra's case was not an anomaly and that honoring her memory um, means seeing the systemic patterns that she herself pointed out in in her Facebook posts and her Sandy Speaks Facebook series of police violence in the U.S. and particularly that her experience is part of a larger pattern of police violence against black women in the United States. Yeah, your book spans so many different um, areas of police violence and so much history here. But the case that keeps coming up again is Sandra Bland's. You bring it up several times in the book. And for people that don't remember, Sandra Bland was an African-American woman who was driving across Texas on her way to start a new job. A state trooper pulled her over for like um, failing to signal while changing lanes. And she was smoking a cigarette at the time. He asked her to put the cigarette out. And she said, why do I have to put a cigarette out when I'm in my own car? He ordered her to get out of the car. And when she said no, the officer told her she was under arrest. And then he pulled a taser out and threatened to light her up if she didn't get out of the car. And she was arrested and three days later died in jail. And her death was ruled a suicide. Um, And so this is just, this is one story, Andrea, but... Like, how do you feel like Sandra Bland's one story shows the the bigger patterns that you're pointing to in violence against women of color and black women specifically? Like, how is Sandra Bland's story part of a much bigger picture in so many ways? I mean, I, I definitely woke up thinking about Sandra this morning because um, obviously it's the second anniversary of her death, but also because she is so present throughout the book. And, and I felt like, um, you know, her honoring her memory was, was a thread that, that felt important throughout the book and in each of the sections. So, um, talking about black women's experiences of racial profiling in, in traffic stops and pedestrian stops, um, and of, of the kinds of, um, pretextual enforcement of minor offenses that, um, is called driving while black, uh, that black women experience. And, uh, So talking about her case offered an opportunity to talk about how that is a systemic issue that, for instance, in 2013, the year before uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, black women were experienced the greatest numbers of traffic stops in Ferguson than any other group, including black men. So black women are very much targets of driving while black. Also, to add to your description of the of the stop, she pulled over because she saw flashing lights in her rearview mirror and was trying to get out of the way of the police officers. So she was actually following traffic laws, which is to get out of the way of emergency vehicles as quickly as possible and pull over and to forget to use your traffic signal in that particular instance is particularly understandable and something that all of us do on a daily basis if we drive. And um, I think that was what also felt so... um, resonant for so many black women, um, because it could have been any of us. And so, um, it felt important to highlight that. And then again, to sort of highlight the, the physical violence that is threatened and enacted anytime black women insist on being treated with dignity, ask questions, do anything that deviates from, um, kind of the role, the only allowable role for black women in U.S. society, which is to be a submissive, caretaking mammy who doesn't ask questions and who does whatever white people tell her to do. And so any deviation from that, um, as in the case, that's just even it's perceived, even if you're just asking a question, why do I have to put out my cigarette? Um, 
is is violently punished. And that's what happened in Sandra's case. Your book talks about the stories of so many women who have experienced violence at the hands of the police. I think there's dozens of stories in here, if not over 100. Um, one story I hadn't heard before was the story of Sheree Williams. And it really illustrates how many women of color cannot trust the police to keep them safe. I was wondering, could you tell us the story? I think it's not as well known as Sandra Bland's. And then explain what, what her story reveals to you. Yeah, I first heard Sheree Williams' story actually from Robin Kelly, um, the author of Freedom Dreams and a professor at UCLA, um, at a black feminism conference in 2000. And I remember thinking exactly the same thing, which is how come I haven't heard this story? And that was actually the context in which Robin raised it, because 1999, um, the year preceding the conference, was the year that Amadou Diallo was shot. And, and that sparked national outrage and protests. In fact, I was in law school at the time and have a distinct memory of being part of a huge march around the DOJ um, in response to Amadou Diallo's shooting and, and being part of many, many protests and actions around that shooting. And um, so it was a year in which, um, and it sort of bookended uh, an almost decade between Rodney King's case and Amadou Diallo's case of just increasing and heightening activism around uh, systemic police brutality against black people in the United States. And what Robin Kelly pointed out was, uh, meanwhile, no one's talking about this story of this person, Sheree Williams, who um, experienced a horrific incident of police violence when she called for help. And, and that that is a manifestation of how the movement um, to challenge police brutality is leaving black women behind. And so I will forever be indebted to Robin Kelly for raising that story, making that point, because uh, Sheree's story is very um, instructive in many respects. So Sheree Williams had experienced physical violence at the hands of her uh, male partner in 1999. And so she called the New York City Police Department for assistance. And when they showed up at her house, they refused to even get out of their car. And so Sheree was outraged by this um, and asked for their names and badge numbers. And they responded by grabbing her, um, shoving her into the car, handcuffing her, um, and then driving her to a deserted lot. And on the way, she was, of course, terrified and could understand why this would happen when she called for assistance because she was being beaten. And um, I think tried to get a hand out of the handcuffs and figure out how to get out of the situation. And they pepper sprayed her in the face. Um, and when they got her to the vacant lot, they beat her within an inch of her life and broke her jaw. It had to be wired shut. They broke her spleen, which I don't even know how one does that, um, and left her there for dead, basically, and with a warning saying, you know, if, if we see you again, um, we'll kill you. And she, and what, what is, um, I mean, it's a horrifying story. And then what's even more profoundly um telling about this story is that Sheree then testified about what happened to her um, before a New York City Council hearing on domestic violence. And what's telling is that her story did not come up as part of the national dialogue around police brutality that Amadou Diallo's case uh, sponsored in the same year or sparked in the same year, um, nor did it become central to conversations about violence against women and police responses to domestic violence even though she raised it in that context. 
And so for, as I say in the book, for a long time, Sheree's story really stuck with me. And I would open every presentation I made with it to point out that black women experience police violence, horrible physical police violence, and we don't talk about it. Um, but also that it happens alarmingly frequently in the context of calls for help. One of the forwards of your book is written by none other than scholar and activist Angela Davis. Um, and she lays out what your work is all about, about recognizing the systems that lead to a culture of police violence. And she writes in the foreword, it is not only black women and women of color who are invisible no more, but also the immensity and complexity of the problem of rooting out the nexus of racist violence. And so this is a, this is a complicated question, but in talking about police reform, we tend to be looking for swift and practical solutions. Like we want new training or body cameras. And that's in part because like we're, we're desperate. People are dying and the situation is very bad. And police reform advocates want to be able to point to a list of ideas and say, do this immediately. It'll help solve the problem. But like, how do you think we can help get to the root of the problems here? Like, what can we actually do to change this complicated and massively terrible relationship between civilians and the police that you think will actually help us become a more equal and better country? It's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's what's going through my mind is like, is like, it's just so, it's so bad and it's so complicated. And there's so many um, strains and roots of this. What kind of work have you seen that you're like, oh, this is actually helping make change? Well, the first thing I wanted to say is just to really say how incredibly honored and moved and um, deeply humbled I was by um, Dr. Davis's um, foreword to the book and also how much her work shaped um, my own evolving understanding and actually is the reason that book is sitting in your hands today. Because the thing that has been most helpful to me in answering the question that you posed um, I learned from Insight, um, which is an organization um, that has consistently also shaped my consciousness and, and politics around these issues deeply, where the question, uh, it was about what question we asked, right? It wasn't about how to help police make us safer. It was about what will make black women and women of color safer. And I think those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And unfortunately, I don't think, as you say, there's any easy answers. I think it requires us to radically reimagine what safety means and how we achieve it. And what I feel like kind of my lane in that conversation has been, has been demonstrating how current approaches are not achieving that goal, how current approaches did not achieve that goal for Sheree Williams, how they didn't achieve that goal for Charlena Lyles, how they haven't achieved that goal for so many women whose stories are told in the book, and so many transgender and gender non-conforming people whose stories are told in the book, and so many whose stories aren't told in the book and, and may never be told. And that, that, again, requires us to think more broadly, more deeply, um, and and go beyond reforming police practices to really thinking about what alternate institutions, structures, and um, ways of being we need to envision and practice and build and make mistakes and then build again and then scale up in order to actually achieve safety um, beyond police.
That was Andrea Ritchie. Her book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, comes out from Beacon Press this summer. When reading the newspaper, which is a thing that I do because I'm apparently 100 years old, a question I always ask is, what's not on the page? It's hard to see what's missing. But that's what journalists and pop culture critics of all stripes try to do, to see the holes, to think about what stories aren't being told, and then to ask why. Andrea Ritchie points out that for all of American history, we haven't been hearing or telling the stories of police violence against women of color. Leia Lakshmi Piepshus Mersinga makes clear that both our economy and us as individuals overlook the story of how much work it takes to care for our friends and community. These are the kind of stories that are so essential to tell and often so hard to see. Thanks again to Julia Weldon for letting us share their beautiful new album, Comatose Hope, and huge thanks to Leah and Andrea for taking the time to talk with me. This episode is sponsored, of course, by the band Secret MG Society. From Two Feet in a Dream to Sorrows Drowned, their album The Stars Fall Shooting into Twangsville takes you on a gritty and beautiful tour down the dusty roads of life into the darkest corners of your heart. If you dig songs, I'll make you want to dance while you cry. If you long for Americana made by and for those who live on the edges of American culture, visit Secret MG Society's Bandcamp page at emchy.bandcamp.com in order stars fall shooting today. This show is produced for Bitch Media by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Every episode of Propaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green at Storyminders. We're proud to make propaganda available to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the podcasts tab. If you have thoughts or feelings or feedback on the show, please feel encouraged to send me an email, sarah with an H at bword.org. I read every email and always excited to hear what you think. You can help make propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Thank you so much for listening.